Hello and welcome to Reading Between the Lines, the story podcast from the People's Friend in association with the Oddfellows. Each episode, a few of us from the Friend team delve into our archives to find a story to read and then sit down for a wee chat about it. So, make yourself a cuppa, pull up a chair and come join us. This episode, we're reading Changing Heart by Margaret Scott first published on the 21st of July, 1945. Reading the story is friend sub-editor Kirsty Souter. Over to Kirsty. Sarah Ramsey had two interests in her life. One was the bleak North Country farm to which she had come as a bride nearly 30 years ago and the other was her son, Ian. Widowed five years after her marriage when Ian was still a baby, she poured all her energies into scraping a living from the unwilling soil of Greenlaw and all the love of her proud, reserved heart on her son, although an onlooker might have found few outward traces of affection because Sarah, like Greenlaw, had a bleak exterior. But Ian understood his mother. He never expected caresses nor soft words. Sarah Ramsay wasn't that kind. There was nothing bleak about Ian, with his frank face and his russet hair sweeping upwards from a wide brow. Ian was clever, so Sarah scrimped and saved in the difficult years before the war to give him his chance. There was no thought of leaving school at 14 to work on the farm for Ian. He took the leaving certificate at 16, went on to the university, and graduated with honours at 21. At 22, he was in the army, and at 23, Captain Ian Ramsay was married in England to Nina Rosemary Williams, whom Sarah had never seen. His letters were full of Nina, happiness spilling across every page. Nina was wonderful. He'd never met anyone like her before. Everybody loved Nina, so that proves he wasn't just prejudiced in the matter. He knew his mother would think they were too young, but times and values had changed. There was no time to wait for anything. Time was too precious to be used up in waiting. Nina had never had a real home of her own. Her parents had died when she was a baby. She was crazy to come north to Greenlaw with him, and he hoped to wrangle a leave pretty soon. So kill the fatted calf, mother. Of course Sarah had disapproved. Ian was far too young, and the young had no sense when it came to picking themselves wives. But she'd had to accept it now it was done. Sarah never believed in crying over spilt milk. But Ian never did bring his bride to Greenlaw. Instead, Sarah left the farm for long enough to make the awkward journey to Aberdeen to meet the South Train and bring back a white-faced, grief-stricken young girl with her, alone. Sarah had never shed a tear that anybody saw, but she forgot her habitual reserve of manner for long enough to hold the sobbing girl gently in her arms during those difficult first days until the shock died away and Nina settled down at Greenlaw, still white-faced but composed. Then Sarah retreated within her shell again, and Ian's name was seldom mentioned between them, although he was never far from Sarah's thoughts, and they were bitter thoughts. It seemed as if the mainspring of her life was broken. Ian had been everything to her. She had been so proud of him. She respected Nina's grief and made her welcome at Greenlaw because she was Ian's wife. But what was Nina's loss compared with her own? Nina had known him only a few short months, but he was her son, her bairn, that she had watched grown from dependent childhood to vigorous manhood, loving him every moment of it. She and Nina were united by their common grief, but if Sarah became fond of the girl, she never was aware of it. She had no room in her heart for anything but the memory of Ian, and Nina was not part of that memory. The girl merely fitted into the life of Greenlaw so that the visit lengthened until there was no longer any talk of her going away. She was too fragile for heavy work, but she was useful in the house and eager to learn. Soon Sarah was glad to hand over the running of the house and all the clerical work in connection with the farm, which had been such a burden to her. They led a very quiet life. Twice a week, one or both of them went by car to the village for messages. Every Sunday saw them in the family pew in the parish church, but they were too far from the village to take much to do with its social life, if they had wanted to. One year slipped into two. Sarah's joints were a bit stiffer, and Nina could now bake on the heavy griddle that hung onto the sweep above the open fireplace. The oil-heated oven held no terrors for her now. Nothing disturbed the even tenor of life at Greenlaw. That is, nothing until Perry came. 
Nina had gone to the village, and it was Sarah who answered the knock at the back door. She found a tall young man with very bright blue eyes regarding her from beneath a blue forage cap. Two other airmen were in the background with their bicycles. Good afternoon, ma'am. He took off his cap so that the watery sun sparkled on his fair hair. Have you any eggs? He smiled his most winning smile, and Perry's smile was a byword over the aerodrome. It was because of his undisputed talents at flanneling anything out of anybody that he had been put in the vanguard of this egg-hunting expedition, while the other two rendered mere moral support. But Sarah was a match for him. It would be a bit queer if I had all the hens and nay eggs. The blue of Perry's eyes became more limpid. I mean, have you a few to spare for us? He included his pals with a sweep of his hand. You can fine it's against the law for me to sell eggs at the door. But we'd never tell a soul. Nobody would ever know. I'm sure you think I look ill and in need of nourishment. The smile became soulful. His shoulders drooped and his chest caved in realistically. You look gay healthy to me. There was no sign of Sarah weakening. What would you do if I got the jail? I'd come and see you, he countered gleefully at once. A gleam of something that might have been a smile chased itself across Sarah's grim face. Her hand itched to warm the ears of this impudent loon, but instead she stepped back. There were few folk whose tongues could get the better of Sarah Ramsay. Come in, but wipe your feet, no foul McLean floor. He came in, and so did his companions, so that the kitchen seemed to be overflowing with sergeant in blue battle dress. They were quiet and stood around self-consciously. That is, two of them did. Perry was never quiet under any circumstances. He sat on the edge of the table and conversation came tripping off his tongue as easily as rain flowing off a roof. Nina drove into the yard as they were leaving, her fair hair escaping at the front of her blue knitted hood. All three of them came off their cycles again and helped to carry the messages into the house. Then they went, reluctantly, and Sarah breathed a sigh of relief. Who were they? asked Nina without much interest, crouching down at the fire to heat her chilled fingers. She'd never become really used to the biting winds that swept in from the sea. They would want eggs. Already, Sarah was regretting her momentary weakness. She was afraid they would be back. The farms close by the aerodrome had no peace at all. Aye, they would be back, and the aggravated thing about it was that she had nobody to blame but herself. She was right. The three airmen came back, and came in. You might as well have tried to hold back the sea as keep them at a distance. Nina was on her knees on the stone floor, surrounded by eggs and crates, and in no time she had two helpers who packed the eggs, breaking only one, nailing down the lids and addressed the labels all in double-quick time. While this was going on, Perry talked to Sarah. The fact that he had got little encouragement did not deter him, and in the end her resolution weakened and she gave in. She never knew quite why she did it. Perhaps it was because she noticed the brown-haired one, the one they called David, or a scrap of ribbon beneath his wings. Or perhaps it was because there was something in Perry's light laughter that reminded her, suddenly and painfully, of a deeper and more resonant laugh that used to ring out in the past. Anyway, it happened. Would you care for a drink of milk? It was said grudgingly, but it was said. They would. So Sarah went herself into the chilly milk house to ladle the thick, creamy milk into tumblers. Scones, pancakes, butter and jam went on the table and vanished like snow in summer. What appetite loons had, to be sure. Sarah remembered Ian and the inroads he used to make on her pancakes, and in spite of herself, her heart softened towards these English lads with their easy laughter and their unfamiliar ways. After that, they just kept on coming, sometimes the three of them, sometimes one or two, till she almost ceased to think of them as strangers. In time, she came to know them as well, better, than she knew her nearest neighbours, and to accept their frequent appearance at Greenlaw as part of ordinary life. David was deceptively quiet, with a sudden wit that flashed out unexpectedly. He was the only one capable of putting Perry, temporarily anyway, in his place. Johnny was the dark, stockily built one who was painfully shy at first, and very boyish in his manner. It came as a distinct shock to Sarah when she knew he was married. His wife was staying near London, Pat her name was, and he was very much in love. He showed Sarah innumerable photographs of a girl with an untidy mop of hair as dark as his own and a wide, engaging smile. Then there was Perry, always bubbling over with some kind of nonsense. Sarah disapproved of Perry and told him so, frequently. 
I'll never understand how they made a daft-like fellow like Yon an instructor, she told David, when she learned that they were all instructors. I wouldn't trust him to tell a body how to put a key in a lock, never mind fly an aeroplane. Don't let Perry's nonsense fool you, Mrs. Ramsay, was the unexpected reply. He's just about the best instructor on the camp. Perry's serious enough when he's flying. At the time, Sarah was unconvinced. Perry, she felt, could never be serious. Soon she became accustomed to RAF slang, and they, in turn, pounced delightedly on the more unusual idioms of her North Country tongue and proceeded to work them to death, usually in the wrong places, with hilarious results. Nina began to look more alive. They treated her like a brother, and she responded to their good-natured teasing like a flower to the sun. The shut-in look left her face, her tongue quickened, and she laughed more readily. Sarah noticed the change in her, but her thoughts on the matter remained her own. It was a lonely district, and off-duty relaxations were few. The three young men used Greenlaw as a second home, and took joyfully to farm life. Labour was short, and even inexpert help was welcome when it was so wholehearted. Sarah had to admit that they earned the innumerable meals that she and Nina set down before them. One after another, they were commissioned. Perry first. He preened himself visibly on the evening he walked up and down the kitchen to show off his slim figure to full advantage in all the glory of his new uniform. How do I look? Like a bantam cock, Maloon, said Sarah dryly. I've heard it said that a PO is the lowest form of animal life in the RAF. Nina's eyes were innocent. Is that true, Perry? He delivered a suitably scathing retort, but Sarah never heard it. She was suddenly caught in the memory of another, younger and sturdier figure, who had asked exactly the same question when he tried on the new suit she had bought him to go to the university. It was not until the matter of the Christmas dance that Sarah realised how much difference there was in Nina. It was David who broached the subject. You must come, he declared. It's to be a really smashing effort. Satisfaction guaranteed, or your money back. Perry was lolling back in the armchair holding a hank of wool for Sarah. Please, Nina, David said coaxingly. It'll be fun. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. But it's so long since I was at a dance. Her face was wistful. I'm sure I'll have forgotten the way how. Bosh, said Perry. You never forget how to dance. It's like riding a bicycle. You just do it again when the time comes. Besides... We'll make allowances for you. At least I will. It'll be you that'll have to make allowances for Dave and Johnny. Don't say I didn't warn you. I'd like to come, but... But what? David's eyes were as impish as Perry's. You'll have three strings to your bow. What more could a girl ask? If you're thinking about the four unmentionably bumpy miles that stretch between here and the drome, ignore them. We'll have a car. Perry airily dismissed the difficulties. Nay, bother at all, Johnny remarked unexpectedly, and they all laughed. Should I go? Nina asked Sarah. Please yourself? Sarah would not commit herself, but she was remembering that she was the girl that Ian had asked to be his wife, and she wound her ball of wool with increased speed. In the end, Nina said she would go. It took her a long time to dress, and David and Perry were waiting impatiently for her with the promised car outside before she appeared. Johnny was still on duty. Then she was in the room, her coat over her arm, and Perry shot out of his chair at the sight of her. Good sakes, he said, with his best imitation of Sarah. David said nothing. Sarah turned from the sink and knew that this was the Nina Ian had seen when he fell in love with her. It wasn't only that she was wearing a little makeup or that her corn-coloured hair was brushed out and set so that it swung, shining to her shoulders instead of being confined around her head. It wasn't just that the blue of her shimmering dress frothed around her feet like an opening flower and made her eyes as blue as sapphires. No, it was more than that. It was something in the sparkle of those eyes, in the elusive dimples and the rounded cheeks, something in her smile and in the vitality that radiated from her. Nina was, for the first time since Sarah had met her, full of excitement and the mere joy of being alive. Sarah sat alone for a long time after they had left her. Her thoughts were busy, and they were not happy thoughts. It wasn't fair. It wasn't right that Ian's wife should go off dancing into the night with strangers when Ian's own brief life was cut off forever. Youth had a short memory, 
and Nina was like the rest of the young folk. Sarah was no fool. She had seen the half-incredulous look in David's brown eyes, the answering smile in Nina's blue ones, and the tinge of colour in her cheeks. No, her own grief would endure forever, but the young, they can laugh and forget. Two days later, Perry arrived alone. His boyish mouth was set in a hard line, and there was a look in his eyes that Sarah had never seen before. He merely came in, took the garage keys from the hook above the dresser, and vanished. He brought out the old car and spent nearly three hours cleaning it, working like a beaver. When he came in again, the hard look was gone from his mouth. Sarah said nothing, and because she didn't, he told her, confident she wouldn't make it unbearable by asking questions. I got word this morning. My best pal crashed on an oil dump. He never had a chance. It was when Sarah saw the unprotected look in Perry's young eyes, she knew by the quick surge of protectiveness she felt towards him, that somehow or other, he had slipped into the heart that until then had no room for anybody but Ian. Periodically they went home on leave, and letters began to come more frequently for Sarah from women she had never seen. Letters, in effect, all said the same thing. Thank you for being so kind to Perry, to David, to my Johnny. That was Pat. She wrote often, and her letters were always liberally sprinkled with my Johnny, and reflected a lightness of heart and an optimism that was lacking in Johnny's own outlook at the moment. He was distinctly preoccupied. It was a letter Perry's mother sent that Sarah never forgot. The crest that headed the notepaper gave her quite a shock at first, but there isn't much difference in mothers, no matter who they are. I can't thank you enough, Mrs. Ramsay, for being so kind to Perry, she had written. It is such a relief to me to know that he has somewhere to go where he can feel at home. Perry is my only son, and I don't have to tell you how much I worry about him. He has told me about your own loss, and I grieve for you. It must be a great consolation to you to have your son's wife with you. Perry says that she is a charming girl, and I'm sure she must be a great comfort to you. Poor girl, it must be terrible for her. The world belongs to youth, and some of them have so little time to enjoy it. Sarah sat over her letter for a long time, and she never forgot these last words. They came back to her the day she overheard a conversation between Nina and David. She did not mean to listen, but they thought she was out and did not lower their voices. But don't you love me at all? That was David's voice. I do, David. I thought that I would never be able to fall in love with anybody again, but I do love you. Somehow Ian seems like a dream to me now. Only this doesn't seem fair to his mother. It's hard for me to make you understand, David, but she brought me here, a stranger, and gave me nothing but kindness when I thought that the world had fallen to pieces round about me. Now she depends on me, although she doesn't realise she does, and she's got nobody else. But, darling, you must think of yourself, too. You're only 24. Your life is beginning. You've got to live. You can't sacrifice yourself just out of gratitude. Sarah had heard enough. She slipped away to her bedroom where she could think. Suddenly, she knew that she didn't want to lose Nina to David, but it wasn't because Nina was Ian's wife and she was jealous for his sake. It was because she loved the girl herself, loved her because she was a fine lassie, because Ian had known what he was doing when he chose her for his wife. Greenlaw would be a lonely place without her. She could hold her, too. She could talk about Ian, as she never had in all the time that Nina had lived with her. She could open her heart to the girl and tell her about Ian, who had been first a sturdy child, then a mischievous boy, and then the man Nina loved. She could make him live again for Nina, so she would love Greenlaw because it was a part of Ian's life, could bring him back so vividly that the half-forgotten dream of a few months would become reality again, and Nina would send David away. She could do all that, but Sarah knew she never would because she loved Nina for her own sake, and when you love people, you willingly sacrifice your own happiness for theirs. She would give Nina to David, because David was a nice lad and would make her happy. It was true what Perry's mother had said. The world belongs to youth, and Nina deserved her share of it. Perry collected the eggs with her that evening. If I ever keep hens, I'll see to it that they lay in the appointed places he commented forcibly as he scrambled down from the top of the peat stack in the shed and laid a solitary egg in Sarah's pail. There's nae harm in trying. There was a glimmer of a smile on Sarah's face. They crossed the road and set off up the field. 
Mrs. Ramsay, Perry began, and then paused. It was so seldom Perry's tongue faltered that Sarah looked at him in surprise. Johnny has been wanting to ask you something, but he feels that if he does, it might put you in an awkward position if you really don't want to do it. Refusing would, I mean, so I said I'd mention it first. Good sakes, laddie, what are you trying to say? Johnny's been hunting all over the district for weeks to find a place for Pat. Naturally, he's keen to get her away from London just now. He's had no luck at all, and he wondered if you might let her come here. Sarah wasn't surprised that Johnny was having difficulty. It would be a responsibility taking the girl when there was to be a baby in two months. Sarah was a realist, and she knew what it would mean if she agreed. She looked back at Greenlaw, its unlovely lines softened by the glow of the evening sun. There hadn't been a child born there for 26 years. But if she said yes, there would be no turning back. She was an old woman, set in her ways. She might not even like Pat. It would be buying a pig in a poke with a vengeance. Yet, oddly enough, she never hesitated. Tell him to ask me himself, she said. Perry was carrying the pail, swinging along beside her with the evening sun bright on his hair. Sarah's heart held an unusual warmth as she looked at him. Time would pass, and they would all leave her, Perry and Nina and David and Johnny and Pat, but she would never really be lonely again. She didn't know why she knew it. She just knew that they were all in her heart forever, beside Ian. Reading Between the Lines is proud to be sponsored by Friendship Society, The Oddfellows. If you've ever wondered what being a member of The Oddfellows means, we're delighted to be able to share some first-hand answers. I'm Diane from Ipswich. I've only just joined Oddfellows last week, but already I've found myself getting involved with dancing, interesting talks, various other things, meals out... Um, I'm hoping that it's going to go from strength to strength and it is now getting me out of the house. So that's how I found that Oddfellows is helping me. Emma from Bradford. The Oddfellows has really helped me to make new friends and it's also given me financial support and allowed me to start saving through its credit union. And I'm just finding it a complete godsend, especially through COVID. Hi, I'm Jill from Nottingham. I've been with the Oddfellows for many years and always found them very supportive. And um, we, we attend uh, lots of different uh, functions and games and outings and lots of friendship, uh, as well as getting compensation for dental and optical visits. So it's plus plus all round. Throughout September 2022, the Oddfellows are celebrating Friendship Month. What better time to get involved and invite friendship into your life? With hundreds of events held across the country, like walks, picnics and online quizzes, the Oddfellows will show you the benefits of a local friendship group and make you feel at ease. To find out more about Friendship Month, give them a call today on 0800 028 1810 or visit oddfellows.co.uk. Join the community today. Now, let's get back to the story. Let me top up my coffee, grab some of my friends, and we'll have that little chat about it. That was Changing Heart by Margaret Scott, gorgeously read by Kirsty, who is also joining us today. Hello, Kirsty. Hello. We also have Judy from the production team. Hello, Judy. Hi. And the brains of the operation, archivist David. Hello, David. Hi, don't build me up like that. (laughs) (laughs) I've done it now. (laughs) Um, It's delightful to have everyone with me to kick off a brand new season and have all your lovely faces together again. Um, And a podcast debut for Kirsty after having read our story as well. So welcome. Should have had, I should have brought party stuff. Yeah, you should have brought cake. (laughs) Next time, cake, I promise. So I suppose on that note, we'll start with you, Kirsty. How did you find reading the story? Was there anything that tripped you up? Anything you weren't sure of? Uh, I really enjoyed reading it. Um, it was fun to do some different accents, which I... <laughs> <laughs> I 
I hope. Um, yeah, I hope I did a decent job of reading it because it's quite challenging when you've got so many different characters and you want to try and keep them a bit distinct from each other. Yeah. And, um, there was a few bits where I realized I was pronouncing things wrongly as to how they were intended and I didn't realize until it was pointed out to me that it was like my umming and eyeing that was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's, I always find it really interesting because these were originally would have been read out to the family or, you know, read out. So it's interesting. It reads very differently to reading it in your head written down to read. So it's always interesting to see how, what gets picked up on when you're reading it. I wonder loud. as well if the writers wrote differently with that in mind or if or if they didn't consider that at all. Yeah, with the different accents and stuff, like well, imagining... Yeah, if, if they wrote it to be read aloud as opposed to just to be read, yeah. you know. Because um, we have a character who's a sort of grumpy rural Scottish woman and so all her stuff's written... In the accent. Well, I mean, Did I just describe you? <laughs> well, so it was quite a thing because I also am a grumpy rural <laughs> Scottish woman. <laughs> but that was one of the things, one of my favourite things about this story was um, all the young lads kind of taking the mic and trying to do her accent. And mm. sort of the way it was written that they were copying her accent was really funny. But it was done really affectionately. Yeah. It wasn't yeah. done as a kind yeah, of yeah. point and take the mickey. It was kind of, yeah, I yeah. kind of really liked that. And she kind of slowly warmed to that. Yeah, yeah. it was that thing where like she secretly was like, oh, who are these kids? But she secretly loved it. Yeah. She was dead cute. The other thing that I really liked about the accents in this as well is they're consistent pretty much all the way through. Some of the other stories that have been covered in the podcast, it's like it's almost tokenistic. Like, mm -hmm. they'll start off with someone in a Scouse accent and then it'll kind of go to BBC English. Yeah. And then yeah. it'll come straight back and it's like, come on. Or if it's like a, a common phrase or something, they'll put yeah, that in the yeah. Scots. But then the re if they don't know the rest of it, then they'll just leave it. Yeah, I mean, um, I feel bad for the story readers this season because I accidentally picked much longer stories. So a treat for the listeners that all these episode lengths are probably going to be a, a wee bit longer um, because... Yeah, I picked. I went through the archives and couldn't tell how many words they were, so I just picked. I just picked the ones I liked. Would you like me to go through everything in future? Can and you just put the yeah, numbers at the you, end of it. Can yes, you please yeah. go Count through them. the archives? <laughs> That's not happening. And I <laughs> so I suppose what kind of drew me to this one when I was, you know, flicking through these hundreds and hundreds of pages of all these beautiful volumes, I looked at. Um, volumes from 1920, 1930, 1940 and 1945 um, so this is obviously from the 1945 one and I think what kind of drew me to it when I was just flicking through was obviously the illustration because I think a lot of the time in People's Friend you get it's all very twee and romancy and it's always you know the romance which obviously I'll obviously share the illustration when I share this episode and you can see that there's a romance in it but you've also got this kind of older character and I just thought at least, you know, there's going to be something else other than the romance there. There's a tension even in the image. Yeah. Between the protagonists. Because there's like the, the couple behind the door and the old lady's kind of listening and she's overheard something which is in the story. It was really interesting to me to see the difference between pre-war and sort of during the war or post-war stories because the ones kind of before the war are all kind of misogynistically romantic, that very mm -hmm. like, and then she was my pretty little wife forever and ever. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> whereas during the war and after, you get a lot more of these different types of stories, different dynamics of family, women kind of finding their place in different ways. Yeah. So I thought this was a good example of that, where you've got a bit more of a family dynamic. And you've got a woman in it who represents kind of both of those sides you know you've got the older woman who would, did come from that slightly misogynistic way that yeah. you're talking about it <laughs> i thought you know she came up with that kind of style of love and then we've got this new post-war yeah and realizing was, what you've lost kind of thing there was a line that i really really loved which was this um there was no time to wait for anything time was too precious to be used up in waiting and i just i thought that was brilliant because a lot of these stories where they do seem to just get married at the drop of a hat and you're like what that's you we can't imagine it but in yeah. those times yeah they were desperate to do because you didn't you didn't have the guarantee of of time that's right to take it but yeah what, one thing i did want to ask david is were there other changes in the people's friend 
during that kind of war time, sort of pre to post? Um, oh, but with both the wars, the first and the Second World War, yeah. there was kind of substantial change. And I think the First World War probably had more of a kind of a sea change in the way that the People's Friend went. So it went from being a much more family paper, mm-hmm. and it still is a family paper, but it, it really focused more on the women and the people left at home in the First World War. And that kind of then stuck. Um, and Judy, you've been through so many of these <laughs> volumes, so it's like, correct me if you think I'm wrong, we're talking rubbish here. Not at but all. it did change, and that's when it kind of became the woman's paper. No. So before that, it started out as a family paper. Yeah. And, you know, and actually, it was quite male in the first few years. Um, actually, for the first couple of decades, it was mm-hmm. quite male. Um, and so you do have that change. I mean, when you come to the Second World War, obviously... They've been through the First World War. Mm-hmm. They know what's happened. There's a there's a history there. And this story, I think, picks up beautifully on the attitudes of the time and something that all the readers would have really appreciated or kind of have first-hand experience of loss and all, you know, having lost children, having lost friends, etc. Um, when you physically look at the paper, um, we're in paper rationing. So this is these issues of the People's Friend are 14 pages, whereas normally it was 32 plus. Mm-hmm. Um, so you do suddenly see it go down and there's a mm-hmm. lot more shorter fiction in it. There's maybe one serial story now rather than many. Mm-hmm. Um, Did the type not get smaller as well? I could have just been my eyes when I was looking at this. <laughs> I'm not really sure. It, it, always, it was always a small type. I, mean, yeah. I couldn't imagine what it would have been like to not have it with kind of decent lighting behind you. Reading by candle or gaslight, it must have been that Someone difficult. pointed out to me like with the first issue, like they would have been reading it by candlelight and that blew my mind because teeny tiny I know I can't even read it in fluorescent light I know but also I mean the stories we know from the friend history that at this point you know copies of the friend are going out to the front line they were in the first world war and they were in the second world war so men were reading these stories and they were devouring because they just wanted anything that reminded them of home something that was kind of a distraction Mm -hmm. um, which is all things that the people's friend does really really well and always has done yeah so what do you think about how it tackles Ian's death because I thought that was quite interesting. It's something you might think is too heavy for the people's friend. I don't know if it would be too heavy for the people's friend now, but it never kind of outright says it. It's almost blink and you'll miss it in yeah, the way that it describes but it. But I, th- I think that was probably quite a deliberate thing because it, it was so much what was happening. It was so much par for the course, yeah. sadly, at that time. And it was a risk everybody was running if they had you know, any sort of menfolk fighting in the yeah. war. It could be... It could be your son, it could be your husband, it could be your brother at any time. So it was almost it was it, almost it, like it was expected and they just had to get on and deal with it. Yeah, it kind of very was sort of, you know, it can just happen in a blink kind mm-hmm. of thing. Because I had to reread it. I was like, oh, has that actually just happened? Mm-hmm. Um, but it still packs that emotional punch in its quietness, I think, by not being so outward about it. Definitely, and they didn't make a big thing of it of her getting the telegram or anything like yeah. that it was just right because it seemed very much in keeping with the character of Sarah herself because it was like that right here it is right let's just deal with this and move on and not make a fuss about it crack on yeah, yeah. no I find um my shameful lack of knowledge about you know wartime and that um, kind of adds another dimension to reading these sort of stories because it took me a minute to realise why she couldn't sell eggs because it's like, oh, you know I can't sell eggs at the door and I was like, why? <laughs> but I was like, I take it that's like rationing and, and all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. So Black marketeering, that's what that know, is. Black, black market <laughs> eggs. Um, what do we think of the characterizations and who were our favourite characters? I'll start with Kirsty. Um... Well, I really enjoyed I really enjoyed the airmen because I thought they were fun. They were fun and they weren't ridiculous like over the top fun. They were quite like you kind of got the sense that they were making the best of their situation mm-hmm. and they sort of found this old lady and just decided like, yeah, we live here now. Like we're going to come to your house, you know, like to help on your farm, like but not in a completely ignorant way either like the jokes that they have with her are quite fun and the care that they all develop for each other it felt to me quite I don't know like it had an emotional resonance that I kind of didn't expect from such a short story Mm -hmm. I thought there was a lot unsaid between like the way that they act around each other and around Sarah that like 
reveals how much they miss their own families and how much they're trying to make this normal when it really, really isn't. And yeah, I don't know. Also, like, I don't, my dad's in the RAF, was in the RAF, so it kind of reminded me of like my own family yeah. because my mum's from up near Lossiemouth, and he was he. That's where he met my mum. Oh. So it had like a kind of like a personal oh, thing amazing. that kind of yeah. Yeah, I think I actually looked because this is set in Greenlaw, which is the borders. And I don't know if it would have been, but I actually checked it, like what RAF bases were around there. And apparently it was Chat Hall, which was open to like, I had it written down somewhere. It was 1942. So, fun mm. fact. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I just assumed that Greenlaw was a made up place because yeah, I didn't even really know. Well, yeah. it is. Yeah. And there was also just happens to be a real life counterpart that had an RAF base nearby. But I wondered, I was like, is that a real place mm, and yeah. did it have an RAF base nearby because so maybe of, it did yeah because of Sarah's accent and because of like my own personal thing I just sort of like put it up in Lossie <laughs> I yeah. was like that, that was an airbase that was like put up specifically for the the, the second world war mm-hmm. and it just sort of like I personally ignore reality <laughs> well, <laughs> like, I'm gonna make this about me <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this, this is mine now <laughs> sometimes I think um, the easiest way to sell something as realistic is not to try and fake it. So, like me taking my accent and taking my own personal. This is up north now. Yeah. As opposed to trying to like pull off a borders accent, which sounds quite different. Mm-hmm. It makes it much more authentic to put a little bit of truth in it. Yeah. And I think when you read things that are written in in Scots, is it meant to be any particular accent or is it? Yeah. Just- well, it depends if it's set. Depends where it's set. It's, I mean, like the McPeevers, for example, you know where that's set. It's set in Partick, so it's going to be a West yeah. Coast mm-hmm. accent, but it doesn't actually say where this is set. Mm-hmm. She gets the train from Aberdeen to go down to London to pick up the oh, thing. So, that, so I, I automatically assumed it was the northeast when I got to mm-hmm. that right, point. Okay. Uh, yeah, actually, yeah. maybe that was... I maybe just internalised that, but I'm, yeah. I'm not... I can't do a proper full-on Doric accent, personally. <laughs> no. And there's no but, Doric in this story. No, no. It it's Scots just so where it comes in. So my Google hunch was wildly incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> you'll learn, you'll learn. <laughs> um, yeah, my favourite character was definitely Perry out of the, the RAF boys. Because I just, I just thought the banter was so well done. Yeah, but they, and they also, you know, in stuff that you've read about the war and the pilots in particular, they were all very much sort of devil me care just trying to make the best mm. of everything everything was a joke and everything was funny because they kind of were blanking out the fact that mm-hmm. the next time they flew anywhere that could be it for them and it does touch on that because one of his friends gets lost and again that's quite a fleeting mm-hmm. just kind of like i've just lost my best friend i found that really really interesting i find the whole character of perry fascinating firstly because i thought he was probably going to be the love interest yeah. And he didn't turn out to be yeah. the love interest. It was the quiet one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's always the quiet one. <laughs> good for the quiet one. You know, um, but that, and also I thought, well, what's his joke? Because he's not quite comic relief, but he is relief. more lighthearted. <laughs> and then it's when he had that moment of, mm-hmm. I've lost my friend. And he turned, he didn't turn to his friends. He turned to um, oh, completely Sarah. 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 And I thought, it's like, okay, you're like, she, so his role is surrogate son. He was a sort of trainer, wasn't he? What's, what's the word I'm looking yeah, for? Yeah, FO or something. Yeah. PO. I kind of felt that he was maybe looking to someone more grown up than him almost, just for a bit of stability and a bit of... Because he's obviously a young lad having to be in charge of mm-hmm. quite a lot of serious goings on. And he maybe just wanted... He wants relieved of the responsibility for a bit. I think it's funny how Sarah has that realization herself when she actually gets the letter from his mother mm. and is like oh that's what I've been doing I've mm-hmm. been seeing my son in him a bit as well mm-hmm. so they have this mutual like realization that they needed someone for different purposes yeah and there's also that subtle thing about this about Perry that when that letter comes from his mum and it's um oh he's he's lower aristocracy yeah, or, or, yeah. You know, there's something about the letterhead which is a little bit kind of posh yeah and not what she's used to getting it's a thought it's like okay yeah it just kind of shows that in this situation 
all these people are kind of on the same mm-hmm. footing. There's no um, differences between them. And, and yeah, I think they all, the reason it's so fun and so banter is because around Sarah and in this house, they all can be their actual age and be kids again because yes. she's this kind of comfort mother figure. Yeah. Whereas, because everywhere else in their life, it's they're having to be the adult. Stuff. Yeah. And we all know how tough that is. <laughs> <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> um, I think overall, this story is just such an interesting theme of firstly grief. Like it's just it's just a complete sort of almost love letter about grief, but also this interesting thing that you see pop up again in these war stories of a mother's grief versus a wife's grief. And like whether one is worse than the other. And I like how it does it in this one because she gets, she obviously feels a wee bit like, well, I'm, I'm his mum, I've known him longer. And so I, therefore I grieve the most. And these young ones are, are getting through it too quickly. But then she gets that letter from Perry's mum and she realises, because in the, her letter she says, oh, it must be so hard for his wife. And I think it kind of makes her realise that you can't really compare these kinds of griefs um, but there is other stories that I th- uh, will come to in the in the coming episodes where it does quite the opposite, where it, it does kind of almost judge the way people grieve. Mm-hmm. And I just think, yeah, it's a really beautiful story about grief. Yeah, there was lots lots of depth to this. And I liked how often in a story, you know, it would be, oh, the happy ending, here's the pregnant mm-hmm. wife, you can look after her. But she's like, oh... This is going to be a nightmare if I take this on. <laughs> you know, it's really realistic. Well, she ends up with more than she started with. She gets a much larger family. Yeah. Which I thought, and she takes on other people. And so it, it unlocks her. But I mean, the thing I liked about this, about the, the, the kind of the grief thing, was it, I kind of, I ended up kind of looking at, oh, what's this, you know, this five stages of grief, whatever mm. it is. And it doesn't really cover that. Mm-hmm. But it is just like, she becomes more and more self-aware. Um, and so there's this lovely bit at the end and it's all done really subtly. It's she goes like, she knew that she couldn't kind of keep her to herself. She couldn't yeah. kind of, she could easily kind of put the knife in and say, guilt trip her into staying at home. Yeah. Or staying with her rather than going off with the new man. But that's what I mean. She was quite, quite a three dimensional character. Mm. But also, I, what you were saying about the stories being a bit longer. And I just wonder if ever having that extra couple of thousand words meant that this could be developed in a more subtle way. And also mm-hmm. because the, I was going to say the comic. <laughs> See, I've been working on Beano and Dandy recently. Uh, so, because the magazine is slightly shorter, but they want to fill it out mm. and they can't put the serial stories in, I think I probably just gave them a little bit, a few extra mm-hmm. words, yeah. yeah, which allowed the story to develop but in it's, a, a very it, subtle and understated way. I know, but, but it's not everybody that could have developed it in that way. I mm. mean, uh, there have been times where you see a longer story that could quite happily have been 100 uh, 1200 words mm-hmm. you know so I just think she's done a really good job do we know if there's been many more stories by this writer or I found nothing out about her no. I went looking partly because Margaret Scott is a well if you google it um, you know they're, yeah. they're ten a penny I hate to say <laughs> been, going, why do I know one. that name why do I know that name oh Margaret Scott used to work on the people's yeah, friend we had our own Margaret Scott <laughs> different one um, however I don't think she was writing for us in 1945 no <laughs> Um, I couldn't find anything about that. I think she had written other stories, but she'd not done serial stories. We've got some indexes from this period, um, but it's only for serial story right. writers, mm-hmm. not for short stories. And I think I did come across something else by her, but could find no biographical detail whatsoever. I think she's probably Scottish. Yeah. Um, maybe not from the Aberdeen area, but my, oh, I, it, felt, it felt like a, a good Scottish story, it not uh, an English person doing pastiche. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It yeah. felt authentic to me in that way. When yeah. I was reading it, I was like, I could buy this as being an actual Scottish author and yeah. it doesn't feel like a, like a Scottish person is a joke. It feels like she's a main character. Mm. Her identity is part of who she is. And like, that's something that you don't always get when Scottish characters are included in stories. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, what a shame that we don't know more about because mm-hmm. it was um, a very, very good one. I'm not ashamed to say that I cried when reading it. Yeah. <laughs> and then I cried again when I typed it up. I'll probably cry again when I edit it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, it just, I don't know. I, c- I can't even pinpoint which particular bit of it that was the tearjerker either. It just, there was just something in it. 
in in it, like I say, it's in the quietness. Yeah, of it. it's in everything that it doesn't mm. kind of say that it, it's very. It's very believable. What I really liked about it was that the character, like her heart changed, she changed, but she, like her personality didn't. Yeah, you still had that quiet, like taciturn element to her character at the end. Like she didn't get like a happy ending and suddenly turn into this bubbly open individual like at the end when she was saying how she was going to take in all these people she was still doing it with like a grumpy scottish (laughs) like wash over how she did it but you could tell that deep down like a fundamental change not like some surface level like personality change it's Mm -hmm. not like those movies where it's like oh she took off her glasses and then she She let her hair down and just suddenly decided she loves people (laughs) yeah just say it kind of saying that there's nothing wrong with the way that she was already she's just yeah kind of is again it's that thing about grief and how it's it's always there but your heart just grows bigger to accommodate everything yeah. around mm-hmm. it do you know what i mean so well i guess we don't have our usual fiction representative of the team but do you think we would publish this today obviously we're not in yeah, I think well, we would. We're not in more time, but you know what? Would what, what, what I absolutely would we think we would. It would maybe just. I don't know. We could maybe do it in two parts. Make it if it was too long. Mm-hmm. But um, I think the length would be the only issue today. Yeah, I think fundamentally, content-wise, there's nothing in here I would feel driven to like slice mm-hmm. out or mm-hmm. or change even. Yeah, I mean, it's very much of its time, and we do. Um, publish a lot of period stories so i wouldn't see any even, issue even the way that it's written yeah like, it's it's accessible to a modern reader mm-hmm. easily well there we go then let's just, let's just you know what end the season we'll just publish this one now <laughs> yeah no i i agree the only thing that i kind of thought was maybe yeah, well, I was going to say, is it too sad in that, you know, someone dies? But it's 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 not because, again, it deals with it very kind of lightheartedly. Yeah, um, nobody's nobody's dying on screen. No. Yeah, out of all of the ones of these that I've read and all the podcasts I've done, this is the story that I've kind of felt felt just right. Yeah. You know yeah. I mean? It didn't feel, you know, there's other ones where you say, oh, someone's edited this and it's been done a bit weirdly or... Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's like it's been hacked or it's been too long or somebody's writing about something they obviously don't know about. And yeah. this feels genuinely, of the moment, somebody who really understands their subject, really understands the people. Yeah. And for us, in hindsight, having kind of all studied the war and, you know, you can't go for education now without it, it's like, yes, I, I get where this is coming mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. completely. Yeah, it's, it's very easy to visualise and picture and you really get the feel the empathy of like everyone in the story and in the room there's no 2d characters in it even the ones that don't get much dialogue yeah are still well-rounded characters yeah yeah actually i think yeah your point earlier that the fact perry wasn't a love interest and is it is it david yes um even though perry gets more sort of airtime and even that i think is is, like you say it's a really interesting choice and it just gives each of them a little spotlight into their own Mm-hmm. characters see in the there's a bit where she's like perhaps it was because she noticed that the brown haired one the one they called David David, wore a scrap of ribbon beneath his wings does anyone know the significance of that or what that oh, means the wings is your like regiment and everything up uh-huh. top and a ribbon is like to signify you've lost someone I think oh, I think I, that's what yeah. I assumed it was something but I was like I, d- I don't know what in exact that's kind of pointing towards but the people at the time would know exactly what yeah that yeah because there would have been a lot of like people going around with tokens and all sorts and you it's would 1945 we've yeah. had six years of it yeah so, you know. so you'd see people all the time like it would be very normal i think that's just another thing of um showing how much is very very steeped in its time and it's very very recognizable to anyone who would have been reading it and it's just my lack of references. <laughs> um, okay, then. I think we'll go for ratings. Going for out of five stars, and we'll start with Kirsty. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I would give it five stars. Whoa! Yeah, okay. coming strong. 
Actually, yeah, it literally made me cry. So I am also going for five stars, David. Can we use halves? Or is that taking you out to ten? <laughs> <laughs> you may have a half. If no, actually, um, in that case, I'll give it five and a half because I really liked it. I thought it was just a really well-written, yeah, just a really touching story without sl- sipping into sentimentality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can we get a full house? Judy is hard yes, to please. I am hard to please, but I am pleased. <laughs> so, yeah, I would give it five as well. Oh, my God. We started off strong. Yeah. And now I'm worried that we're not going <laughs> to find another one. That meets the same levels. Oh, that's amazing. Well, thank you to Kirsty for narrating for us and to David and Judy for joining us for the discussion. And thanks to you for listening. Um, all that's left for me to say is until this wee group of friends gets together again for another story, from the friend to you, cheerio. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Reading Between the Lines. Follow on your podcast app today so you don't miss out on our next story and check our previous episodes for more from the Friend Archives. We would be delighted if you were to recommend this podcast to your friends. If you don't already get the People's Friend magazine delivered, because you listen to Reading Between the Lines, you have an exclusive offer to subscribe to get your first 13 issues for just £6. Check the episode notes for details and terms. And for more from The People's Friend, visit thepeoplesfriend.co.uk, subscribe to our newsletter, or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Hasty back! There's a dainty little journal that is read both far and near. It has had a host of rivals, still it stands without a peer. It is bright and entertaining from the first page to the end, and is known to its admirers as the dear old people's friend. A charming little journal is the friend. Of good things it is such a happy blend. That to read it at your leisure is a pleasure without measure The friend to friends in trouble recommend They won't be happy till they get the friend